Folks, if you turn with me in your, your Bibles to that part of God's Word that we've already been reading from, we're actually going to look at a few verses at the end of chapter 13, then chapter 14 and <coughs> chapter 15 of Exodus, round about page 71, page 72 of the Bibles there in the pew. Let's pray. Father God, we have just said that our hearts will sing to you because of your great love. Lord, we pray that as we spend a moment thinking about your word, about the lengths that you go to to save your people, the lengths that you have gone to to save us, we pray that a song would be born in our hearts that we'd never stop singing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was driving around in the car this week in between visits and just happened to dip into a radio program where they were talking about X Factor and they said that X Factor last Saturday night had a record ever audience, bigger than any finals even of previous series. 14.8 million people tuned in to, to hear uh, X Factor, I think Cheryl Cole was on, uh, so that probably explains it. I mean, Britain has to stop and pay attention when a when a, a singer of such historic significance takes to the stage and um, and sings. Fourteen point eight people, fourteen point eight million people <coughs> stop to stop everything they do, sit down and watch what's ostensibly a singing contest. There's something about music and about singing that's always held the human imagination captive. Uh, song has always played a vital part in, in any human culture since as far back as anyone can remember. Good songs do wonderful things. Great songs can help us remember and celebrate a past. A great song can inspire us and give us hope for the future. Songs often help to, to draw us together and remind us of our shared ground, the things that are important to us. This morning, as we continue in our series in Exodus, we're going to come to one of the great songs of God's people Israel. First of all, we'll read about an event in chapter 14, and then we'll read about a song that celebrates that event in chapter 15. Let me remind you very quickly of the context. Last week we thought of how God's people started their journey out of Egypt. God brought a whole new family of people together. And you'll remember the thing that struck us there was that this family wasn't, um, wasn't primarily brought together along bloodlines. Uh, this was a family made up of any person who wished to be a part of the community of God, to follow Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. This was a, a family formed together by God's salvation, people who wanted to be a part of that. You'd imagine that when you become part of a family like that, part of God's family, if I can put it that way, that that would be life sorted. I've responded to, to Jesus Christ. I've become part of the family. Everything will go simply and well for me from here on in. 
Well, a lot of us will agree that that's certainly not been our experience. And it wasn't the experience either of these people of God formed in Egypt. In verses 17 to 18 of chapter 13, we learn that these guys leave, leave Egypt armed for battle. There's a sense that all isn't well. They, they know that they're in danger and under threat. It's an ominous reminder that these people are not yet safe. They're still in enemy, enemy territory. So there's this sense of the ominous, but in verses 20 to 22, we get a lot of comfort. We read that God is with his people. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So Israel feel under threat, but have a sense that God is with them in this dangerous moment. When we turn to look at the Egyptians, it seems that some of the lessons that that we imagined they had learned that seemed to be taught so convincingly in the ten plagues, they haven't actually finally been learned. So in the, the early verses of chapter 14, we find that God explains to Moses, actually, Pharaoh's going to pursue you. Uh, we're not out of danger here just yet. Do you remember what we said about the plagues? We said that according to the biblical text, the plagues aren't presented as God's judgment on Egypt. They're presented in a different way. They're presented as God teaching Egypt a lesson. There's some stuff that that Yahweh wanted Egypt and Pharaoh to know. He, He wanted them to know that he and not Ra, the God of the Egyptians, was the ultimate power and authority. Pharaoh, I want you to know that Moses, my messenger, and not you, the messenger of Ra, is the one who will have ultimate control in what's going on here. So these these plagues were supposed to teach Pharaoh a lesson, but we see here that the lesson wasn't learned. Yahweh is going to have to demonstrate his power one last time to ensure that, that Pharaoh and Egypt get this. To ensure that there's no doubt in anyone's mind who's the boss, who's in control. In verses 5 to 9, we see that that God's prediction comes true. Pharaoh does begin to pursue the Israelites. We're given an interesting insight. The reason he does it, well, it's because he realizes that his slave labor force has just left. It's economics. It's when it hits us in the pocket that we, we, we go back to old ways that our behavior becomes what, what it ought not to be. So here we have Pharaoh. He assumes that these Israelites are sitting ducks. He gets his, his army and his chariots ready and he pursues them and overtakes them. He still doesn't seem to realize what he's up against in, in the true and living God. The Israelites, I think they've forgotten some stuff as well. They've forgotten what they saw in the plagues. 
they've forgotten that, that the true and living God is at work and that he's working for them. So we read in verses 10 to 12 that they're terrified of the Egyptian army pursuing them. They turn on Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Doesn't seem a very grateful response in some ways to turn to the guy who's just brought you out of 400 odd years of, of exile and captivity and to say to him, actually, we didn't want to come. We'd rather have stayed, Moses, if, if you don't mind. And it seems like a weird thing until we realize that, that this is how most of us live most of the time. We prefer the security of slavery over the riskiness of freedom. We settle for fitting into the way things are, for, for living with other people's expectations. We're content with, with building lives that feel secure. And we try to ignore the reality that these secure and sanitized lives are, are boring us and leading us to death. Folks, it seems to me that the majority of Christians in the Western world aren't willing to enter into the freedoms that Jesus Christ offers. Freedom from materialism. The law that says, I earn, so I must consume. Freedom from the approval of peers that says, I couldn't possibly make my own choices because I have to fit in with everyone else around me. Freedom from trivialized lives. We say that we've been saved, but it seems to me that we're reluctant to walk out into much of the freedom that Jesus Christ offers to us. Like Israel, coming out of Egypt, we're, we're slaves still in our own minds. Leave us alone. would rather serve the Egyptians. When Moses was confronted here with the, the fear of God's people, his response was, was straightforward and simple. He said, don't be afraid. Just watch. Watch and see what God is going to do here today. And the remainder of chapter 14 tells us this well-known story of what God did do that day for his people. He parted the sea, he let them pass through, and he closed the sea over wiping out the Egyptian army that pursued. We read a summary in verses 30 to 31. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore, and when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in <coughs> Moses, his servant. 
Folks, not for the first time. This is a, a pretty hard part of, of this Exodus narrative. And I thought it would be a good moment to take a step back and reflect on, on this, what I found a very troubling aspect of all of this. And that is the severity of God's punishment or, or judgment on, on Egypt. First of all, there were the ten plagues where you see God hitting Pharaoh with repeatedly uh, hard blows until finally in the, in the tenth plague, uh, the firstborn of Egypt loses their lives. Here this morning we're thinking about a final devastating and decisive blow, an Egyptian army wiped out under the waters of the Red Sea. And for me it begs a question, does it have to be that way? Why does God come down so hard on the enemies of his people? Maybe an illustration will help. One of the things that I loved most about the three years I spent living in Vancouver in British Columbia was the, the, the wildlife, the natural beauty in the place. So I got to see bald eagles and coyotes, killer whales and bears all in the wild. And I soon realized as, as I saw all these things and, and enjoyed getting to know a little bit about them that there was one animal that just stood head and shoulders above the crowd. If the lion is the king of the jungle, the grizzly bear was the king of the North American forest. This is at the same time a beautiful and a terrifying creature. You can't travel too long in the Canadian Rockies before you, you get a sense of the presence of the grizzly bear. Everywhere you go there are posters, beware, bear country. And I, I, I took a chance to flick it up on a website uh, to, to remind myself of why these warnings are so stark. These animals are strong enough to disembowel you or decapitate you with one swipe of the paw. They can run at the speed of a top sprinter. Uh, they can climb trees. I, I can still remember the one time that I did see a grizzly bear being very grateful that it was 50 yards away and that I was in a car. And that, that seemed like a good way to see a grizzly bear. If you read the literature, it'll tell you that it's always dangerous to meet a grizzly bear. You should always treat them with respect, uh, regardless. But there's one situation we're told you should avoid at all costs, and that is to come between a, a mother grizzly bear and her cubs. If you do that, know that you will be destroyed. There's no room for negotiation. No time for discussion. So powerful is her love for her children and her protective instinct that she will destroy anyone or anything that threatens to harm her children. I'd suggest that there's a little of that going on in our passage this morning. We noticed at the end of the chapter, the reason I say that is, is something that I noticed in the passage that I hadn't really seen before. At the end of chapter 13, we talked about God's presence with his people. He goes before them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. 
But then when Pharaoh sends out his army, when he goes to threaten God's children, an incredible thing happens. God repositions himself to protect his children. We're told in chapter 14, verse 19, the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Pharaoh was like a bully charging into the school playground. He thought he had an easy touch. A bunch of unmilitarized slaves who didn't know what they're doing wandering around in the desert. And he goes to confront them thinking, this is easy money. But then something happens and suddenly Pharaoh has a problem. He comes face to face with the living God. He comes face to face with that experience that that we've thought about from nature. It's not unlike approaching a grizzly bear where she knows that you've come to hurt her children. Folks, it seems to me that God's judgment on Egypt in the end is terrible because Pharaoh and Egypt have spent centuries harming his people and they still want to do more. God's judgment in the end is terrible because of his love. It's it's the terrible flip side of the love of God that he will judge those who harm those whom he loves. On that day, God defeated Egypt, and he did it this time decisively. And from the brink of disaster, Israel were saved. Just on that day when they thought it was really all over, they see God's greatest salvation. I I talked about Israel's fear as they stood on the edge of the sea. I I can understand that. Israel feared the, the visible power of Pharaoh. They could see Pharaoh, they could see his army, they could see them approaching. But by the end of the day, things had changed. Rather than fearing the visible power of Pharaoh, God's people had begun again to see and to trust in the invisible power of God. This was a pivotal day in the life of Israel. They, they knew from this day on that everything had changed. And, and they did what people so often do in these glorious and wonderful moments, they ended up singing. We can read their song in in chapter 15. I'll sing to the Lord for he's highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They they sing this song. It, It retells the events of that day. And actually it becomes a bit of a national anthem to them. It's a song that constitutes them as a people. It's a reminder to them of what God did to save them. Folks, if you've been around the church here or or any other church nearby, you'll notice that churches tend to be singing places. And that might be normal for you or that might be quite strange for you. But just like Israel, the church 
uh, chooses to, to sing. It, it sings about the wonderful things that God has done for it. Israel sang about that moment when they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. We sing of a different and of a greater rescue. When Jesus Christ came among us, when he died on a cross to rescue us from death, when he rose from the dead to bring us to a new life, we sing about a much, much greater exodus. And we have a different, pivotal moment and day. You see, just like and every bit as much as the people of God standing on the shores of the Red Sea, we have been saved. That's why the New Testament Christians were singing their hearts out to God. Paul, Paul's a good example. You find Paul, we read about it in Acts 16. He sings in a Philippian jail. He's been bullied all day by the Roman guards. Uh, they've beaten him ferociously with their whips. His back's open and bleeding. And yet we're told that it's midnight and Paul and his friend Silas are sitting in the jail and they're singing. They're singing to their fellow prisoners. They're singing of God's salvation. He can't stop singing. When Paul writes to the new Christians in the city of Ephesus, he says, Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. James picks up the theme in his letter. He writes to the church under his care. He says, Is any one of you happy? Let him sing, sing songs of praise. Folks, singing salvation songs is a way of life for the people of God who know these realities. As I close this morning, I want to ask you, do you feel like joining in when you hear salvation songs being sung around you? I'm not talking primarily about your mood. I'm not talking about which side of bed you got out of this morning or any other morning and, and whether you feel like singing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about whether when you hear these songs, whether you own them, whether they tell your story. These songs of Jesus who died and rose again, these songs of, of forgiven sin and of a, a, a new life, entered into are these songs telling the story of your life or are they somehow talking about a parallel life that you haven't yet experienced are they songs that are for other people but not for you <coughs> Moses stood that evening as the sun set over the Red Sea and he reflected on the day that had been and he sang a song. He said, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. What about you? Could you sing that? Has Jesus Christ become your salvation? Is there a song in your heart that you can sing even when you've had a bad day or a bad week because it doesn't depend in the end on your mood. It's a song of salvation, a song of a life changed and of a future with God. Has God 
become your salvation. Folks, this morning, rather than moving into a prayer as we often do at this point, I thought we'd simply sing. It's number 668 in the hymn book, and the words are here on the screen. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Let's stand together as we sing this salvation song.